2: Acast.com.
3: You're listening to Pop: The History Makers with me, Steve Blame.
2: Apologies for the shades. It's just... Um...
3: <laughs> well, I don't know. I think it's hotter in England than it is in Germany today, so uh, I understand why you're wearing shades. Listen, um. Uh, this, this might be a weird opening question, because I really want to uh, go back a little bit, I mean, a little bit, really into your childhood, because you're the definition of a post-war child. You were born a month after the Second World War. and
2: yeah, um, a, boom, a boomer.
3: So you're a post-war child, born in Presswick, uh, which is near Manchester. Press um, Presswich. Presswich. Okay, born in Prestwich, got to get this right, which is near Manchester. Yeah. Um, what do you remember about growing up in post-war Britain? Was it this sort of cliche of playing uh, in, the, in the rubble? I mean, what was your
2: childhood like? Uh, it wasn't rubble. I think we were, we were sort of somewhere between working class and middle class. So we, we, there was no rubble where we were. There was uh, a garden, there was a garden. So I spent a lot of time in those never-ending summers in, in my parents' garden, knocking balls against walls, Wanted to be a tennis player and uh, running around and running off down the street on my bicycle to meet friends and, and stuff, uh, but no rubble. Rubble well, that- came when I went to college, but no rubble where I was brought up. Were they a musical family? My mother's brother had a sort of uh, a ragtime band and she used to play a little piano. Yeah, so kind of, yeah. My dad wasn't remotely musical.
3: Were they interested in music? Did they listen to music? And what sort of music did they listen to? Because your parents, I mean, I've got, you know, my mother's now passed and uh, she was a war generation. You know, she, she was in the yeah. um And, you know, her musical tastes were formed in that era. So that was the sort of music that she listened to. And I obviously yeah. listened to that as well through her.
2: Well, I... I think my father liked opera, light opera, <coughs> was very fond of uh, Bing Crosby. And uh, he thought he could kind of sing like him a bit. But could he? Uh, which, no, not really. <laughs> Thinking back, he could hit a note. But, um, no, I don't, I don't think, so I don't I've got Echo on here. Um, okay, I should be all right. Okay. Um, I, no, I mean, it's it's strange because the, the actual mechanics of playing music in those days were so different now. But luckily, uh, my dad was... Um, he, he ran a number of businesses in the centre of Manchester. He sold... Uh, Records, record players, tape recorders, TVs, cameras, and so on and so forth. So he he um, he had the latest version of whatever crap equipment was around those days. Um, did that and, fascinate but, you back then? Yeah, it kind of did because it was a sort of magical cupboard with, um, you know, if you open the cupboard, there was a sort of magical turnover with knobs and things that you could turn. I never dared... Really messed with them till I was over, yeah, you know, probably about 14 years old because I didn't know how to work them. Um, but it wasn't a very musical family. I mean, as I recall, we didn't actually spend a lot of time listening to music, not really. Now, um, the
3: reason I'm asking this is because there's a, there's a definite drive for experimentation throughout your life which is, yeah. for me, such a sort of fascinating thing, because you've never, ever seemed to have stood still in your life. And maybe when <laughs> you have stood still, then you've gone for a change immediately. So I just wondered if you sort of analysed where your drive has come from and where that sort of drive for experiment- experimentalism has come from.
2: I think probably more than anything else, it was, it was later on. Um, because My father, you know, like many fathers, was was hopeful that I could go into the family business and become a businessman and manage the various shops that he had in town. Uh, and I used to, you know, to be honest, I used to go in on Saturdays to help out sometimes. And I gradually became fascinated with, with all the different facets of, of what he sold. Um, you know, one of the, he had a music shop um, called Hyam's Harmony House which we believe in the central Manchester, uh, one of many music shops. Um, But in the main shop, it was tape recorders, radios, record players, records and cameras. And just being behind the counter and actually, you know, taking people's cash and, and selling things, very badly, I should add, I sort of vaguely got to know what all these devices did. And, of course, you know, in those early years, I was listening to things like Radio Luxembourg and... And stuff, and everything kind of gradually connected. And I got to to sort of fiddle with things. I was pretty good at taking things apart, but pretty bad at putting them back together, you know, that that syndrome. Um, But uh, I think really that that, that this drive to keep changing and experiment came about after spending a number of years at art college. We, you know, me and Laura Cream, we were both. 60s art college kids and that's where that came from the, 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 at that time there was a there was a push to keep looking keep searching we had a very interesting tutor who, who was sort of mo was was different to all the others he would uh, he would run his fine art class in a very strange way uh, he would first of all find out find out what you were good at, and if you were good at if you were right handed and you were good at painting, he would make you paint left handed, uh, but using charcoal instead of a brush. In other words, which it sounds really bizarre, but what it does it put takes you out of your comfort zone, and makes you try things that you never really wanted to try because there was no need. But what he was trying to say was. If you try something different, if you keep looking for new ways to apply whatever talent you have, you may come up with something quite extraordinary that you may never have come up with if you'd done it the normal way. And occasionally, one did—not all the time—but it was something that's kind of stuck with me. Um, and I guess I've always, I've always sort of gone against the situation where. There's a predictable outcome, um, if you like. If, I, if I'm writing a song and I can't write music to a brief, I find that very difficult, I, I, I sort of rail against that. Um, because I always like a situation where something is in flux until it becomes something that I didn't know that it would become. Um, that's, that's the excitement for me. Um, it's not like walking across the road with your eyes closed. It's not quite like that, but it's a bit like that. There always has to be a, a little bit of, a little bit of jeopardy in there, a little bit of danger, because just going back to uh, what Bill Clark said, in the, the, the art tutor, there may be something extraordinary just beyond your grasp that you may be able to grasp if you go about it this way. It's amazing. It sounds like, I mean, he
3: installed, in a way, a philosophy into you, didn't he, it sounds like? Yeah, very much so. Excuse me. I mean, one thing about that type of uh, idea is that not only is there nothing without risk, but failure is part of risk. So it also means that you have to open yourself up to failure. Is that something that during that period with bill clark during that period at art college that's where you allowed yourself to start failing in order to succeed
2: yeah although the definition of failure in painting and art is it's a fine line if, if you know what i mean you you're really the only one who knows if you've done something interesting i think but he turned it into a game it was it was kind of He had people standing on one leg blindfolded doing stuff, you know. It it was pretty crazy. But I think he did that because he wanted to make the experience fun and not something to be dreaded. Um, Yeah, I, you know, failure at art college. There's no such thing. You don't fail at art college. (laughs) You just make messes. Or you do something amazing, you know. <laughs> but I guess that depends on what you're studying. I've I actually ended up studying graphic design, not fine arts. So um, there were disciplines that one had to learn, uh, but I took much notice of them. But but yeah, I mean, it, it was. was the... I mean, that whole period was great. It was a great period.
3: It was also the period of the. The, the first period, or what is termed the first period of the teenager in a lot of ways, um, you know, that was supposed to be Bill Haley coined the term, and it was uh, in the 50s through to the 60s were the, were the sort of the, the first teenage years. Was there a sense of that you were, as a teenager back then, part of something that was a real movement and something different? Because it was a, it was a, a thing that was an alienation from your parents' generation?
2: Very much so. I mean, it began earlier. It began towards the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 60s with... It it basically came from America. Um, And that, of course, was was Elvis Presley, uh, an unprecedented situation where somebody was being banned for wiggling his hips on television. And... I don't know, there were various youth movements going around at the time. I remember when I was very young, they were called Teddy Boys at the time, I think. Um, And they used to stand on the street corners and threaten to beat you up as you went past. (laughs) And that was their job, I think, back then. They looked amazing. Uh, But there was this other group of people, again from America, called the beat generation and those of us who had any kind of art artistic bent were kind of drawn to that particular tribe as opposed to the teds you know and you know obviously we were pseudo beats back in those days we like i'm wearing shades now which i should explain my office is in a conservatory so it's incredibly bright so i'm not being posy but back then we were incredibly posy we used to go to a coffee bar called the Kona Coffee Bar in Manchester and sit there doing this, you know, and writing poetry. And there was a candle in a Chianti bottle and all that. It was really, was really, really pseudo stuff. But we we, we identified with something, with a creative movement that turned out to be quite important in, in America and gradually spread. But the big, the big, biggest influence probably that came, and I'm talking about myself and, and all my friends at that time, but mainly Lol Cream, was the Beatles. Um and it sounds terribly corny and obvious now, but but I've been thinking about it a lot. And what they somehow managed to do musically was was capture the ferocity of the TED's the physicality of the tents, but wearing a look that was completely reminiscent of the beat generation. And they, they managed to combine both of the main tribes of that particular area, that particular era, sorry. And, and, and it, was very, it was a very powerful thing. We weren't conscious of that at the time. And I think that's, that is because they grew up creatively in Hamburg, not in England. Their influences were European as opposed to English more than anything else. You know, the way they looked, the instruments that they played were, you know, they weren't available in the UK at the time. And Everything about them, they had their own names, they didn't have stage names. The way they performed, they they sang and played at the same time, they didn't have a singer. It was quite revolutionary back then. And they made great... Tunes (laughs) Tunes <laughs> and it was, it was, it became um, emblematic of that gener- generation musically, anyway. I, I remember when the Pepper album came out, and uh, I showed up at college that day, and nobody was working. All the different departments photography, printmaking, fine art, graphic design, photography you name it, sculpture they'd all stop work and everybody, students and tutors alike, were pouring over the album sleeve and every department had a different track on. So it was it was like walking into Revolution on the night when you got to college. And it was such, um, it was a real door kicking open moment, that was. And How that would you... probably more than that.
3: Sorry, go on. Sorry. How would you define uh, what, bound you to low cream because obviously there was something there that I presume there's, there was a friendship which was one side of it but there there must have been some sort of interest in each other um, the creative interest in each other that bound you together can have you ever really sort of defi- you know looked at that and sort of been able to define it
2: well he played guitar I mean in those very early years at art college, we were both trying to play things. I tried guitar, I tried, I was in a band, terrible hopeless band called Group 17. Trying to play bass on a Hofner Club 56 string guitar and I was crap. Um, and I eventually sort of got into drums um, via my neighbor who had a kit of drums and let me try it and I was better than him. Uh, we wanted to be in bands, you know, like, like today kids want to be on YouTube or want to be this, want to be that. That was kind of the thing back then um, and we both had aspirations in that, in that direction. But we, we thought very much the same, uh, slightly out of the box. We wanted to make musicals, we had ideas for weird stage shows and we used to convene at the weekends and come up with sort of wacky ideas. So we were kind of on the same page at that very early stage creatively. Um, yeah. Did you Not try to emulate, was, you know, th-
3: you, you mentioned the Beatles and you mentioned that, the, you know, those those type of bands in the, in, in the 60s, which everyone tried to emulate. Where, did you initially try to emulate them? And when did the point come where you realized Okay, this isn't working for us. We should do something else.
2: <laughs> it wasn't that clear cut. Yeah, of course we did. I think the first song we wrote was something called The Best Seaside in the World. And actually I listened to it recently. It wasn't that bad, but it was, wasn't great. But yeah, we were, because, because the Beatles kind of defined that ilk and said, this is great music, and we were very young. It's like, okay, let's see if we can write something like that. And I think a lot of people do. Um, but the 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 point of realization that we weren't the Beatles and we could do something different came much much later. Um, we'd been in a band called Hot Lakes, briefly, myself and along uh, Eric Stewart. And that's we were still very much um, enamoured with the Beatles' style. The song that was a hit, well, it wasn't really a song; a thing that was a hit from that period was called "Neanderthal Man," which came as out of a a sort of studio experiment, and was wasn't even a song; it was a thing, and that was a hit record. But the rest of the album, uh, called "Thinks School Stinks," I think, at the time. There were a bunch of songs that were kind of like Beatle-ish songs meets Simon and Garfunkel songs. There was no... There was no real... There was nothing individualistic about them particularly. That only came about the very beginning of 10cc when we, we'd had a hit record. And we had to come up with an album very, very quickly. As you did in those days. And so... We had like three weeks or something ridiculous to both write and record. So we booked ourselves into Strawberry and just got to work. And, and every, anything that we wrote, we recorded. And there wasn't time to sort of sit back and think subconsciously or consciously, oh, that's, that's all right, but it doesn't sound beatly enough. It doesn't sound like what good music is supposed to be. There was very little sense of of, of self critique, if you like, which was a great thing because we were working completely off intuition and instinct. And it was only sort of two thirds of the way through the, the process, we, we realized that what we were making didn't sound like anybody else. It's like suddenly we began to notice that, that hang on, that's, that's, what the hell is this? Um, so we thought, oh, well, that's probably a good thing. So let's let's carry on along those lines. So it wasn't a conscious thing at all, and I think that's probably what happens to most people. They, initially they're trying to ape their heroes, which is a natural thing, but something happens—probably different, different ways of reaching the same point for everybody—that uh, that turns the basic capabilities into something that is very that, and that's kind of what happened we became we became the result of these four people working together in a hurry how did
3: that how did that actually work because it's it's always you know whenever i read or or watch something about 10cc there's always the talk of the the two almost separate entities you and lowell on one hand and the other two on the other and that you're the experimental ones. What interests me is whenever I look at the the track listings and I look at who wrote what and so on, it seems like two, sometimes three, but often two are credited and two are not credited, which seems a little bit odd when the contribution between the four is on the whole track. So maybe the first question is, how does that work? Who gets a credit on a record? How does that work? And secondly, what was the reality of working together and the contribution of each person?
2: Good question. Who got the credit? You mean under the title, on the single,
3: etc. Yeah,
2: exactly. That's, that's basically whoever wrote it. Whoever wrote the song. Normally what would happen is we would go off into, a, as you quite rightly suggest, two groups. Myself and Lowell and Graham and Eric, and we'd write something and then we'd bring it in and offer it up. Um, and nine times out of ten, yeah, that's, that's interesting, let's record it. And, and, and it's, it was more in, shall we say, the production and arrangement um, side of turning a, a raw song into a piece of recorded material that everybody shipped in. And of course, it can change shape a little bit uh, in that process, but they didn't actually change shape that much. All that happened was we found the best way of interpreting a song using all our collective talents. That's how it it worked. Um, It was interesting, and it worked the same pretty much for, for who performed it, who sang it, everybody got a shot. Uh, to sing the song and if they weren't good enough the rest of the band would hold a sign up saying next and then Graham would go in and try it if he wasn't good and would try it Alan. and it, it became obvious um, who should be singing the song so it, it was it was very democratic because the thing that led the process which thinking back was an unusual process was making a great record that was it that was all that really mattered but we kind of went about it in a different way most people back then used to record a bunch of backing tracks um, for however many songs they would written and then gradually work on top of it add a guitar to this one guitar and on that one gradually move through the layers we didn't do that we worked on one track at a time and, and, and if we had a sound in mind that worked, we, we we put that sound in with echo as opposed to leaving the echo off. we we make a decision, just going back to the Jeopardy thing, we like the echo, the echo stays, that will take us to somewhere else. So we were, we were crafting it based on each layer of performance that we added to the track. So we were, we were creating the finished sound of the track while we were making it as opposed to leaving it to a mix. But it was very democratic. Everybody, everybody, everybody got a chance to do everything, pretty much.
3: I suppose what I'm getting at, I mean, you're saying it's democratic and what I'm getting at is if you're credited on it, isn't there a sort of sense of ownership and isn't there also a financial <laughs> bonus by being credited as a writer when in fact, for me, the best 10 C-, C records are the ones that have the unusual different sound and that may have come not as part of a credit on the track. Do you see what I mean?
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe, I mean, some groups do that. I mean, you 2 do that. Everybody gets the same in you 2 um, but for whatever reason, we didn't. Maybe we were being possessive. I don't know, everyone was... But, I mean, don't forget that, that, that Graham was already a successful songwriter before Tennessee C came into existence. That was kind of the way it was done back then. You know, if you were the writer, you were the writer. <laughs> That's what everybody else got mechanicals and PPL and all that kind of stuff, but you got the writing share. Thank goodness, um, in later years but but no it doesn't have to work that way it, it's just how it worked for us. yeah I'm,
3: i suppose what i'm getting at is there's also that like a track like i'm not in love um and the initial uh song i think it was graham that came in with the initial song am i right that the initial song wasn't really it was... sorry
2: so no i think it was eric and graham wrote the song i don't know who who started the song, I've no idea. But they wrote the song and we, I know what you're going to say, so, <laughs> I think I know what you're going to say. So, we recorded it, uh, but we recorded it in such a way that it didn't do the song justice. And it sounded a bit shit. We, we recorded it as a sort of cheesy nova, And, over. and uh, it didn't work. So we shelved it. We, we were, in the early stages of, excuse me, making the original soundtrack album. But we knew the song was good, but we'd just come up with the wrong treatment for it. So we shelved it and moved on with a views years of coming back to it later, which we did. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a funny one. And just going back to your early comment with regard to in Love, yes, I wish we did all share in that one because because I, 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 my contribution was to come up with the idea of doing it all with voices. Um, so that's okay, it all kind of balances out in the end. Um, but as these situations often are, the idea of doing it all with voices was essentially, it was, a de- it was, it was like out of desperation. And it was like, well, what, what's the most outlandish thing we could do with this? Uh, excuse me, why don't we try it all in voices that never end? Pause, silence, a beat. Um, so we tr- we, that's exactly what we did. And, uh, but there was no guarantee that it was gonna work. But and th- this kind of addresses the reason why the chemistry between the four of us worked so well. In a sense, uh, Eric and Graham are a prime example of classic songwriters. Their, their aim has always been to come up with the great song. Um, and that is the target. That is that is what they're trying to do. Whereas Earl and myself were much looser in that respect. Our job in a sense was to fuck it up. Uh, I, our job was to say, no, but seriously, it's, it's, you know, it's to stand on one leg with a blindfold and come up with something that you're not going to expect. Um, and the two sides complemented each other very well, in that if something was too straight and too obvious, we'd add something that made it go in the other direction. And likewise, if, if we'd come up with something that was too wacky and too out there, they'd apply their talents to just twisting it back a little bit. And I think think that's why the the band was successful, um, because it was a combination of both those attitudes, really.
3: You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. How did fame change you? Fame? Yeah, I I mean, once you're successful and you have, I mean, you had massive world fame thrust upon you, as it were, uh, at, uh, you know, a fairly young age, and um, it must have an effect.
2: Well... We weren't huge, you no, know, we weren't huge, massive, I wouldn't say we were massive world-famous thrust What, here's, okay, what I remember about fame is uh, both Lola and myself went out and bought cars, as you do when you're about, you know, 25 or whatever it was we were. We bought two white, spanking, brand spanking new Lotus Plus 2S cars. And, you know, driving them the crowd. And I remember I pulled into a local garage, the one I used to go in with my old crap blue, Hillman Imp, filled up with petrol and promptly locked myself out of the car. My keys in. It's as if saying, just watch it, son. (laughs) You're not as big as you think you are. And I was there for about half an hour waiting for someone to show up with this brand spanking new white. Lotus plus to west with nowhere to hide, <laughs> and it was it was a slight kick in the nuts to one's ego, and that's why I remember about fame. Should we say oh, the the early stirrings of fame? It was uh, something that very quickly said, "Just don't believe it. It's still you. You've just got a flash car, but you lock yourself out. You dick." Um, <laughs> So, yeah, no, I mean, not... I hope that hasn't changed me a, a, a great deal. I think, let's call it success, let's not call it fame. I think as the, as the band grew from that point, I mean, we had some hits quite early. Um, we did quite well. We, we were never enormous in America, for instance. We, 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 we toured there a few times. But the problem we had, as a band, we were essentially a studio outfit. you know. We, 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 we sort of translated to the stage, but we were never that comfortable there. Um, we didn't look the part, really, as a unit. Some of us looked okay and some of us were comfortable, but it, was, it, it didn't gel as a live thing other than the sound. And that was gradually becoming more and more important at the time. And um, we were becoming aware now, because we'd signed with a big label. We'd moved on from a small label to uh, a larger label, Phonogram. And there was a bit of pressure, you know, this music that you made is, is successful. So perhaps when you're making your next record, you should be thinking of doing a song like this, or maybe one of those and a funny one, and a long godly cream one you know that kind of preemptive process was was coming into the mix, and it was it was it was a bit uncomfortable for myself and Law, particularly for me, because it, that element of jeopardy was gradually being eroded it was like um, I'm having to write to brief now, we need a funny one. Okay, let's go away and write a funny one. I'm not in a funny mood, you know. And of course we had a road crew and we, you know, we had tours lined up and there was, in other words, we had responsibilities, which crept up on us to, to a degree and that became uncomfortable. You know, I don't want to sound like a spoiled brat, and I'm not moaning about it, it's just that that what drove me, as you rightly said, was was the need to keep changing and trying new stuff. That was, that didn't quite fit the mold anymore. That wasn't the mold, that wasn't what we were doing. We, we created a, a successful beast. So our job was now, to keep it successful.
1: Um,
3: I've always thought about the music industry in, in terms of, the, they, they were in that era particularly, the gatekeepers, uh, you know, the people in the record companies, but why would they know any better than the musicians making the music?
2: Probably because they were the labels and they represented and released artists Many, many different artists. And they, I imagine, analysed how and why some artists were successful and why some artists weren't quite so successful. But I think the one thing that made us stand apart from that syndrome was the fact that we we weren't operating out of London, which was the main the main sort of centre of the music business, both in terms of talent, recording and labels. We were, we were up in the north of England in our own little studio and therefore the label kind of felt that what we were doing okay already was, was successful, so they didn't come down to listen that often. So we were pretty much left to our own devices because that was seen and actually was part of who we were. Um, but that was, that was gradually changing. Everything was changing. And um, as I said, there was a certain amount of pressure. And we were changing as people, you know, we would be, we, you know, I got married, Wal got married. Um, we, we, we began to understand the world a little bit more outside the studio environment. We, we were developing as people and our tastes were changing. Um, and I think that, that, that sort of impacted in, into what the group was coming or what it, what it could be or what it couldn't be. And there was a point where it ceased to work, where I don't know, Lol and I were hankering after doing something experimental, so we'd, we'd invented this musical instrument or device that plays the guitar in a different way, called the Gizmo. And we wanted to try it. So we booked three weeks in Strawberry Studios to, to give it a shot, to see what it was capable of. And we found that that process was far more satisfying than what we'd recently been doing with Tennessee Steam. And this was this was just as we were about to go into pre-production for a new Tennessee C album. And, and, okay, so we, we'd done that. We were buzzing about that. And we weren't sure what to do about it. Um, and then we were due to go in to start recording a Tennessee CC album. And, and we went down to the studio to hear a song that, uh, that Eric and Graham had written um, to be included on the new album. And we didn't... We didn't like it. We thought it was we thought it was lame. Um so we said so. <laughs> and you know, it was and it was like I don't want to do this anymore. It's I mean saying it now, it sounds like a bunch of spoiled kids. I don't like it, so I'm not going to do it. You know, it's it's and it probably was to to a degree, but as you know, what drove us and what drove me was continuously moving forward and trying new stuff and not resting on your laurels. And this felt like laurels.
3: It, felt, to it sounds to me like becoming an adult. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Being able yeah. to say what you want and what you don't want in a way. So maybe yeah, that, you can do a- that in a completely different way.
2: Yeah. Well, it, that's how it impacted on... on on what we were doing at the time, it, it somehow it, it it wasn't about. It ceased to become art. It was it was more about commerce. I think at that point, um, and we didn't. I didn't want that anymore. Um, so you know, the nuclear option <laughs> happened, which was which which was a shame. But I think it's you know, I mean, looking looking past it now, I I think it may be because partially we were were from the north of England where it was all one for all and all for one. We're all together, lads, you know, against the world. And that changed somewhat. I mean, other bands, contemporary bands like Watson Music who who, uh, were friends of ours, they didn't do that. They had a much more sophisticated arrangement. If somebody wanted to do a solo project they went ahead and do it and, and the organization accommodated that situation because they knew that they would learn something and bring that back to the table for the for the main event you know so but that couldn't work here for for whatever reason we were presented with the situation No, you can't bugger off for six months and do your own thing we've got a tour coming up any record expected you're either in or you out to boil it down to, to something that simple. So we decided to be out.
3: Yeah, that sort of threat never works, does it? It's always a, the, the threat where you can't go along with it if you're given that ultimatum. Yeah.
2: Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't that black and white, but that, right. you know, in a nutshell, that's, that's really what it was.
3: In terms of video production, that also seems to have come about uh, I think accident is probably the wrong word here, but it's almost in the experimental way you make an Englishman in New York the video, and then s- suddenly mm. you become video producers yourselves. Um, how did yes. that really happen?
2: Well, our first, um, strangely enough, our first sort of run in with, with powering music with pictures was nothing to do with us. In a sense, other than that, a small section, instrumental section of the *Consequences* album, was used on a Benson and Hedges cinema commercial, and used extremely well. So initially, we we were providing music for pictures. Um, how it happened was, we we were still with I think we were with Polydor now. But, you know, obviously in a, in a vastly smaller capacity than see I I don't think we'd had a hit record uh, as yet. And we'd written and recorded this song called An Englishman in New York. And we weren't a touring band, it was just myself and Mo Cream. and we no, had no intention of becoming a touring band. So we figured maybe the only way to do it is to make some kind of a film, short film. They weren't called videos in those days, they didn't really exist. The only time you got to see a piece of music film was usually on, was either on top of the Pops where the band couldn't show up or on the old Grey Whistle Test where, for the same reason. So someone would make a weird little film to go with that piece of music. And we figured that was the only way to promote it. So we, we, we drawing on our previous artistic lives, college, uh, and a, an innate desire to become filmmakers one day, we sort of cocked up an 8-frame storyboard and took it to the label uh, saying we want to make this film, you know, expecting it to be kicked out the door. But they said, yeah, that's a good idea. But you have to work with a, a director because you've never done it before. Which, you know, obviously was, was and you know, we didn't know a video camera from a film camera really, but in, in those days. So we did. Um, and we found the experience utterly thrilling Uh, of course we were the artists um, but it was our idea and we had ideas of how the idea could be improved you know how we shot it how not sorry how he shot it how it was to be edited and, and so on and so forth in other words it brought something out of us that are probably lain dormant since our art college days, to a great degree. And we took to it like ducks to water. It, it was a natural transition for us. And we were, must have been a real pain in the arse because, um, you know, we showed up at the edit and we were, what happens if you press this? Don't touch that, what happens if we touch that? Don't pull that lever. We were, and the, the actual things thing in the end, it's a bit of a mess, looking back on it, but it does show that we weren't afraid to try things. And luckily enough, the director was, um, his name will come to me in a minute, um, was open enough to to understand what was going on and allow us to try things, you know? And as it happened, the finished thing and the song was a hit in Europe. It wasn't a hit in, in the UK, but it was a hit all over Europe. It, being
3: and, artists, um, yes. help you actually work with artists when you were making videos for you know, all these great artists during that era.
2: I think that is one of the reasons why we were successful in the media. Because at the time, at the very beginning of the music video years, there weren't that many people directing videos, particularly in the UK, and some had come from commercials, some from television, some from documentaries, but I think we were the only duo directing that came from music, and I think that made musicians much more comfortable to talk to people who could understand what they were trying to say and be how they'd like to be portrayed and, and so there was a point of contact and i think that was incredibly helpful yes very much so
3: i mean you've you know you've talked about being experimental in in ken cc musically in, experimental in your your uh music with lol experimental uh in making videos where do you think or what, what video that you've made for someone else has been actually uh, made better by you going into an edit suite? This is a generalization because maybe it's in some other way. You going into an edit suite and you mucking about. And actually that video suddenly took on a new life because of what you added to it. And what did you add to it?
2: Uh, Okay, well, two two come to mind immediately. Um, The first one, I think, uh, was uh, Rocket for Herbie Hancock. Um, It was a strange brief because MTV at the time apparently weren't playing um, many black artists. Um, So the brief was, come up with an idea with Herbie in it, that's not overt and it's like what okay let's see if we can break this rule (laughs) and I remember seeing a a short piece on a local news program in Manchester about this artist called Jim Whiting and it showed a little bit of his work so I I, I sort of doed for the dive for the v- VCR machine such as it was back in those days frantically pressing buttons and managed to tape about five minutes of this piece and i think it was the week before the track had landed on our desk as a possible job but we hadn't thought of anything yet and when i saw June's work it was like that looks like that sounds um Law Lol agreed so we, we 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 ran up and an idea of how we could possibly make this happen we met with jim and he made a few more creatures and we went to a studio and shot the shit out of it basically not even to the music because it was very noisy hydraulic machinery that made them work so we just filmed them in in sort of stylized domestic settings against the black background we hadn't a clue how it it was going to slot together but we knew, knew in, in our bones that this stuff would work um, and when we hit the edit we started editing it together but we, we, we decided, difficult though it was, that one of the dominant sounds on the track was scratching but that's not really possible to do on video particularly back then. What you really needed to do was cut between the footage going forward and the different versions of the footage going backwards. So we transferred all the footage running backwards as well as forwards. And we spent hours cutting frame by frame between them. And we must have been there for like 20 hours or something because, you know, we had the stamina in those days. And we finished it, and we looked at it, and we thought, fuck, they're going to kill us. Because, no, seriously, because in those days, there was no such thing as a video commissioner. There was no such thing as you having to present a treatment to the management band or label. How it worked was, if they'd seen something that you'd done that they liked, they trusted you. They said, we want a film to go with this piece of music. Can you come up with something? And you said, yes. That's how it worked. You have this amount of money, can you make it work for that? Yes. And we did. That's, it was as simple as that. It was all about trust. Um, and then obviously it changed, but back then, that's what happened. So we presented this thing that we'd done to the powers that be, and there was a few days of silence <laughs> we were gritting our teeth and biting our fingernails. Nobody really knew what it was. Herbie apparently didn't understand it at all. But we felt that, we, I, I don't know, just instinctively, we felt something was coming, something, MTV was only just beginning at about this time, I think. It hadn't been around for long, and it was only there, it was only in America. And we just felt that, you know, live or die, this would give MTV a kick in the balls. Whether they show it or not is a different thing. But they did, and it was on high rotation for a long, long time and made a record a hit, you know, so it reinforced that attitude. In us, that whatever it was that we could bring to the party, however different and strange, is something that is going to work in this new medium. Uh, and it didn't do our reputations harm either. And we won, I think, five uh, MTV astronauts for it the first MTV Awards I mean it what's was amazing about
3: that what was amazing about I remember seeing that when you know in the early 80s and seeing that on on TV probably on top of the pops and actually being completely blown away by it because it was something so different it also gave Herbie Hancock a mainstream hit which yeah. you know had eluded him Uh, so, you know, this showed really the power of video, but one thing that I think you've always done, which I found fascinating is almost you've led technology. Do you know what I mean? You've made something by let's say pasting it together (laughs) and then the technology (laughs) comes along and can make it later. Do you know what I mean? Almost like cry cry was, you know, this incredible video, um, And it looks like something that a computer did, but it's not, is it?
2: No, that was the other example. Oh, tell me. Well, the original idea for Cry, because Lol and I, we weren't particularly comfortable about making videos for ourselves. It was like, okay, these two cranky old artists have written a great song and recorded it. Who should we get to film it? It Has to be us. Unfortunately, the artists were us as well. So it's a difficult one. So we had to come up with something that, that, was, that was simple and that would allow us to perform the song without going through mad gyrations or anything too ridiculous because the budget was going to be limited. Um, so our original idea was not to be in it at all. It was to have Torville and Dean skate to the song and film that. Unfortunately, they wanted to do it, but our diaries didn't match. They couldn't do it when it was needed to be done. So the thing that ended up as the final video was Plan B. It was, oh shit, what can we do? Oh, we'll just film our faces. And because it's the kind of song that anyone could sing, let's get loads of different people singing it as well. And we'll kind of line them up in the camera and we'll think of something to do in edit, I should, maybe it's, now's a good time to, to, to suggest that our approach to making these films was very much like our approach to making music. You know, we we try stuff, and if that chord didn't work, we, we'd try a different chord. Or if that word worked better over here, if that phrase worked better over here, we, we'd try it. It was all, it was essentially making both became Trial and error to a day, great degree. Obviously, the further you spend in the media, the longer you spend in the media, the more it seeps into your consciousness and you know what to avoid and what to go for. But that way of thinking has, all, has always been there. So we kind of figured if we shot this stuff, there would be something interesting that we could do whilst editing to turn it into, into an, an interesting film. And initially, we just mixed, dissolved between the faces. If you actually look at the video, I think the first three or four facial mixes, it's just the whole face mixing to the next whole face, mixing to the next whole face. It's only from about four in, the, the faces began to, and I use the word loosely, morph from one face to another. And that was because we thought, I didn't that looks a bit shit why don't we try a wipe? Now, a wipe is a very simple editing tool which can open open from the middle as a circle revealing whatever picture is underneath or wipe from the top to the bottom, the top down or this way or that way. But you can also have it with a soft edge so you can't actually see the old one going and the new one coming. So we, we tried that and it was like bang shit, when you go from face A to face B, there is a new face, there is a new person in between face A and face B. And that was like, that was, that was unbelievable. And we just carried on using that technique throughout the rest of the film. Um, again, it was a long edit. Um, but yeah, it, it worked incredibly well. And it was incredibly, Incredibly simple, because the the human face inherently is attractive and interesting. It does hold your attention. But
3: they were carefully chosen. Again, it was different to uh, The the other people. Not carefully.
2: Yeah, they were chosen because they had interesting faces. Um, We essentially picked them out of a casting book. um, And we sent every one of them a cassette of the song to learn prior to the shoot um Not everybody did particularly well, so we had to use them where they're not miming um, but it, it, it actually really seemed to work better with this face for this point than the another face for this point so again there are some sessions that you do that are somehow blessed or magical. the series of The sessions jumping way back that we did for I'm not in love were magical. Everything that we tried on the finished recording worked incredibly well. Everything that we added worked incredibly well. And it was the same with crime. Uh, Every face that we tried worked incredibly well. (laughs) And so we were left with this thing at the end and we were, what the hell is this? They're not gonna kill, they're not gonna kill us for this one, but but will it help the song do well? And again, the, the answer was yes. And it, it affirmed, reaffirmed, that if, if you come up with something that is, that is good and it is different to everything else that's going on, you do stand a chance of being noticed in a good way. It just reaffirmed that, that thing that had always been there from all those years ago, from Bill Clark.
3: Many... Artists that I've talked to are who have a long history uh, and who have uh, a success in the past are often very rooted in the past. But this is something. I mean, you've just—it's not long ago you did your first solo album. You are still yeah. rooted in experimentalism. When we met at the Reeperbahn Festival a few years ago, there—you know—you had this uh, app. Uh, which was also yeah. an experimental uh, act um, yeah. and it's, there's been a massive development in your life. And although you have your successes, um, you are still like active and in the present, which is very unusual, I think, in the music because it's not that many people who have had a long career who still have that. So, what do you strive for today? What did you strive with muscle memory? What do you look for today?
2: Uh, again, it's it's an intuitive thing. I look. I mean, the whole muscle memory project was was experimental in that I was I ended up working with people who I'd never met. I don't know if you know anything about the history of it, but but because my only musical instrument, the only instrument I could play is drums which isn't the best instrument to write songs with. So once I decided to make a record, um, I had to find people I could write with. Um, so I, I put an ask out there on Pledge music asking people to send me pieces of instrumental music that they thought I might be able to turn into songs. You know, I thought I might get 40, 50. I got 286 pieces of music, which is nuts. Uh, but marvelous. You know, I didn't expect that at all. So I had to, the idea being was um, I get a mix from each of them, a rough mix, put it in garage band and start singing over the top, which which is a sort of technical way of doing what we used to do, sitting opposite somebody while they strummed and I sang, you know, but I no longer have to make them coffee. Um, which was kind of better, <laughs> and it worked incredibly well. I, I, there was a precedent a few years earlier, a couple of people, again who I didn't know had sent me pieces of music for that very reason and asked me to write a song over each of them. And both turned out very well, ended up on the album as a matter of fact. Um, but I, find it, I found it exciting that the discipline of having, something that not only was written, but was recorded. Um, And that really worked well for me. I could sit at home and just try things, however outlandish, until I had something that I liked. And all I really did was go through the 286 pieces of music and whittle them down until I had 12 tracks that I felt I could work with, and then I, tried things and found that I could and, and finished each one but, but I, it was the beginning of the project and I wasn't consciously looking for any particular style of music I was, I was hoping to tap into the wellspring of talent that was out there people you know recording on laptops in their bedrooms and garages and on buses or whatever but again it was the, it was the element of the unexpected that, that attracted me this is I like this that was really interesting can I come up with anything that would work for this I didn't I didn't want to play safe I didn't want to want to come up with you know sort of something last three and a half minutes on an acoustic guitar and it's lovely you know make some fucking noise and send it to me it was it was it's the challenge always the challenge that that, that that is exciting. And I actually didn't know that it would work as a cohesive album. So we started to put the track listing together and it did, strangely enough. Um, and I was very pleased with the result. It, it is quite a contemporary sounding album because most of the people who I worked with were way younger than me. Um, and I've only ever met one of them.
3: That's amazing. Still, listen, Kevin. I just want to say, finally, uh, thank you for the interview. But more than that, I want to thank your art teacher because I think he installed something <laughs> in you, which has actually given all of us some amazing pleasure over the years. So, uh, thank you again.
2: Well, that's very, that's very kind. That's, his name is Bill Clark. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. ACAST.COM